The number one and most important things to do is an industry standards assessment. Make sure that you're complying with the industries that you are in to ensure whether it's manufacturing and you've got ISO assessments that you have to be compliant with or if you're in the transportation space and you've got ELD. After that, it's really a strategy and roadmap. Beyond that, it's really a benchmarking of where you want to be in the growth aspect. And there's always learning curve and the rough road to being first. Hi, and welcome to Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. Today, I have the pleasure of having in the studio with me, Clara Eustard. Now, Clara is the Director of Channel Marketing for Manufacturing, Transportation, and CPG at AT&T. Clara, fantastic to catch up with. Thank you so much for making time, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So good to be here. Now, I would love to dive into the detail of your role around uh, what a Director of Channel Marketing inside uh, Manufacturing, Transportation, and CPG means. But uh, often with my guests, uh, what I do is ask them to give us a little insight in themselves, a little bit of a background of kind of where you're from, where you grew up, what your academic and uh, career path has been like so far to get to this exciting role. Um, would you mind maybe just uh, introducing yourself a bit more to uh, our guests to let them get to know you personally, but better before we dive into your amazing role? Absolutely. So I'm from a small town in Texas called McAllen, Texas, and I think very rarely do people familiarize that themselves with that city unless they are actually in transportation. We have a lot of um, maquiladoras that come from Mexico to um, the U.S. through that same port, and we're about 20 minutes away from the border of Mexico. So transportation's always been in my blood, I guess. That must have been an interesting place to, to grow up as far as your childhood goes and some of the, the fun things you can do in that area. Yes, absolutely. I mean, going back and forth across the border is a lot of fun. And just the, the places in Mexico that you can go visit um, that are close by are exciting. And you get to go to a whole different country. You know, it's nice to go into, you know, middle school and high school and say you've been to two countries. I bet it is. Now, you've done some amazing stuff in your background. It's, you know, reading up on you. Um, I mean, you've done a whole bunch of work around community services, uh, working with um, projects with uh, underprivileged children and a whole range of things, including something that was called, I think it's the, is it the Promise House. Um, and uh, I understand you're a council board member there. Tell us a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so um, I, I my degree is in psychology, and so I always thought I was going to end up working with children. And when that kind of shifted into more of a business role, I, I still spend time in that arm of my life, um, but extracurricular. And CASA and Promise House are two organizations that help children who have been displaced from their homes. For CASA, um, I'm a court-appointed special advocate, and I go to all of the court meetings with the children who's been taken from their home and help advise the judge. And really, they go through so many different um, people, from their lawyers to um, their special assistants to people who are kind of checking in on them. And so you're kind of the one steady person. And um, since there's not a a lot of foster homes here in Texas, they have this facility called Promise House that houses quite a few kids. And I go and I meet with them and help them make dinners, teach them, you know, life skills. There's not a ton of equipment there. So sometimes I get stuck with the boys and we have to do some yoga or do things that are um, a little flexible and free and don't involve video games, which I'm sure they would love to spend a lot more time doing. But we got to get them outdoors and really teach them just different life skills on how to create a budget and things that you really probably wouldn't learn um, at that age, but they kind of are forced to do that. And we 
we also provide psychological services to them so they know how to deal with these emotions and feelings that they're going through. And it's become a real passion of mine. And now that I have kids, it's become even more important for me to spend time with those kids so that they get the same uh, love and attention. Wow. Well, uh, likewise, as a parent, I can uh, I can only imagine the juggle that brings about of, of, of your focus on your own family and your own kids uh, versus uh, other people's and, and children from strange scenarios. And you, I mean, I can't even imagine how you juggle all that between that and your own family life and work life. That's just <laughs> outstanding. I, I barely survived just a work life. Uh, I did note as well that you are an active uh, mentor within at and In fact, I, I saw a note that you were recognised by your department um, with something called a Diamond Club Award a, a year or so ago, um, as well as a Visionary Award um, and a, a series of other things around the whole space and STEM. Um, tell us a little bit about what being a mentor at at and entails. Well, um, I came from the leadership development program within AT&T, so um, it's kind of just a new hire program, and then they specialize in making sure that, one, you have a mentor throughout your entry-level time with us, and then second, um, you go through all of these different organizations from customer-facing to internal to uh, individual contributor. And I just kind of continued on with that. I love the program so much that I wanted to make sure that people outside of this special group of individuals who get hired in and get special attention kind of trickles down to employees who might not have been hired in that same manner. So I love hosting um, people, and we talk a lot about um, your personal brand. We talk a lot about um, how to get your next job what people should know you for, how to invest in yourself, how to utilize your one-on-ones. So we have a variety of different topics that kind of get brought up from meeting to meeting. Um, and then my favorite is networking without creeping people out, because um, that can happen. <laughs> I, like, I like the sound of that. Uh, I may have been uh, told off once or twice of spending too much time in the water cooler until the boss got there to spend time with him, so I can relate to that. Um, wow, what an amazing amount of energy you must have. I, I can't wait to see your book come out. I hope I get a first uh, signed copy oh of it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're, you're, you've literally got 10 books in, inside you waiting to be burst out. Well, congratulations on all of that. I'm, I'm just astounded. I'm sure we could spend an entire show talking about all of those amazing achievements. But I, I hope you don't mind if we circle back to your current role because I, I, yeah. um, I was quite taken by a number of the things we spoke about just before we hit record off, uh, talking off air, um, which I'd love to get into in a minute. But if we maybe just a couple of minutes talk about what your role as far as you know director of channel marketing in the manufacturing transportation and CPG space, maybe it's just a summary of what that role entails. It sounds to me like it's a very broad yet deep role. Um, I'd love to learn a bit more about what the role entails and perhaps what a day in the life of Clara is like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's kind of funny because I'm a big fan of The Bachelor and our our boss used to say every year, this is the most exciting year at AT&T yet. And just like the most dramatic season of The Bachelor yet, it's totally lived up to the hype as far as how much time I've kind of spent with manufacturing, with transportation, and with consumer packaged goods. Um, a day in the life is so random. It's never the same. And for someone like me who likes a very varied work style, um, I'm able to kind of cross a lot of different segments. And being in the channel space, we get to work a lot with the product teams and make sure that our products are shaping up and what additions and just useful things that need to happen to each of those products to be customized for each of those industries is probably the most important 
Because if you don't have things that are of value to your customers, then you don't really have a business. So spending time out in the field with our customers is probably the second um, favorite thing for me to do and also most important. I love getting to meet uh, our customers, learn more about their business, because I think the more we learn about the different organizations, the more we can kind of customize and change up what we're doing to make our products and services more useful to those customers. And just spending time with my dad on his manufacturing floor, even in the last like five to six years, things have changed in terms of technology. And maybe you're not investing in, you know, a new device or drill press or something like that, but you can put a camera on there and make sure that your analog systems are tracked back. And I'm also fairly new to the group, so I'm learning a lot as well in terms of how we're augmenting our traditional technology to make it beneficial for the transportation space. I imagine there's a number of big changes in that space. With You mentioned some of the technology with cameras. I know that in manufacturing, for example, certainly transportation, I've had some clients over the years where when you walk into the reception, one of the first things that strikes you is these big chalkboards or whiteboards with number of days since incident, for example. And so I imagine you've got a scenario where you've got lots of opportunities to change the industry as far as delivering services and goods and, and reducing costs and becoming more um, operationally successful and time and money and resource, but there must also be a challenge of just that basic um, safety and use of technology to increase the safety of people's day-to-day jobs as well as creating business benefits, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I would say when you go into these facilities or when you're, you know, one of the most important thing is safety and Everything about these plants, the way they're laid out, and the fact that they, when you get a new greenfield plant, you can absolutely create these renderings to make sure that they're incredibly efficient and you do reduce your incidences. And then the technology that you're putting in in terms of vision as a sensor or just IoT to make sure that um, your manufacturing uh, floor is working as it should. And let's say your drill press, maybe it's, you know, from the 1940s, you can position a camera on it to make sure that it's not going to snap off or any of the little things that, um, you know, might reduce downtime for your machine um, can be done and put in place no matter how old or how new it is. And I think safety is such a cool thing to focus on because you're helping people, um, in the end, and that's the most important piece of it. Uh, indeed. There's no better sales pitch than being able to uh, prove that your technology or business systems can save lives or at least a reduced number of fingers lost. I know that a lot of the work you're doing at the moment in this space, uh, and particularly through the application technology, is this whole space of maintaining accountability. I found this quite fascinating because I think it's an area that our listeners probably know a little bit about, but I'd love to dive into it in a bit more detail. Um, when you think about the challenges that are involved in some of the things you're talking about, whether it's, as you said, a new greenfield space where you've got the ability to put great new technology in place or an existing uh, a site that's been there for potentially decades and things are a little bit old and cranky and dusty, um, that whole supply chain challenge of managing the and maintaining accountability of um, who's got control of something, where it is, uh, who's responsible for it, what treatment's being applied to it, uh, all those various handoffs, there must be an amazing um, plethora of opportunities to apply technology to that whole supply chain end-to-end process. And what's what's happening in that space, and what are some of the things you're working on currently? I think the whole beauty of the supply chain is getting so much more visible to people from different dashboards that are able to be provided. And 
the factors that a company can't control while a freight is kind of changing custody. I mean, you have the manufacturer who's basically handing off their beautiful baby to you and the transportation space is trying to keep it as safe as possible. But, um, you know, you can't really control all factors like weather, the level of service that your partners provide, quality of the cargo handoffs. So you really need to put sensors in place so that during the chain of custody, they can demonstrate that accountability by ensuring the freight is secure and maintained in the condition that's required for shipping. And because you see all of these different possibilities, I mean, you never know what's probably going to happen, but the sensors provide you data. I think one of the coolest ones is um, we were transporting data for a museum and they wanted to make sure that no light entered a package. So one of our sensors actually tracks light and we use that now all over to determine if a package has been opened or tampered with. But we have the same capabilities in terms of the um, vision into the package, but also making sure that it hasn't been tampered with, moved around, or um, it hasn't perished. So in terms of food capability as well, you want to make sure that it's kept at a certain temperature because if you're shipping fish, you're, you want to keep that frozen as long as possible. Indeed. I imagine there's a, in key industries where, as you said, if someone's just fishing, uh, fishing, if someone's shipping all fish, I guess there's a series of control mechanisms around that you can, you can do for an industry itself if there's, um, you know, if they're, they're fishing, any, uh, shipping anything, I keep saying fishing, if they're shipping anything that's, uh, that's controlled. You know, I know that a lot of logistics and transport companies focus on particular verticals. There might be food, whatever. But at the other end of the spectrum, it was interesting to hear just what you're saying there about moving slightly more random things, whether it's you know art in one day, food the next day, perishables, et cetera. That, that must present a series of challenges where you've got organisations that are shipping a number of things because you never know quite what's in that ISO container that's being shipped around. Um, what are some of the, the conversations you're having with organisations in that space like now where they might have been in business for decades and say, look, we've been moving things around for a long time. We're quite good at that, but we want to use technology to become slightly better as a business at moving the bits around for the supply chain component. But what can we do in the boxes? What can we do with that 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 space that's in there and, and maybe not always knowing what exactly is going to be there from day to day? That, that must be an interesting challenge of that multi-varied uh, shipping component of not knowing what's in the box every day, but having to still provide that quality capability end to end. I think the conversations are really changing and the ability for technology to kind of catch up with the needs of the business. And I was joking with another supplier that, you know, now millennials want to know from what farm their chicken came all the way to the condition it experienced until it reached their table. And it's not really a joke anymore because now our, the manufacturers who are shipping these precious cargo pieces want to get that same end-to-end visibility. So setting up geofencing is something that's been new but also very exciting for us. So as soon as it leaves one person's chain of custody, if you set up a geofence for that sensor, you can ensure it actually reached the destination and location that you kind of set up for that piece. And then along with the sensor data, you can tell if there was motion or impact or vibration or temperature or humidity and, and then again light disruptions that I had mentioned earlier to said package. And so as people need more things, we have to develop better and more useful sensors that are able to distribute this in near real time, which I think is also very important because people want to know not only did it reach its destination, but where it is along the route. 
and the dashboards that you can kind of have with these, you know, asset management operations, you need a full visibility into where everything is because we're transporting so much stuff across the U.S. and globally now. That does. I mean, one of the questions that comes out of that is that we, you know, we, we hear a lot of um, enterprise environments and I guess banks in many ways have hackers hitting them for their data. Uh, we see phishing attacks or the emails being sent out where they're, you know, they look and feel like a legit email. There must be an enormous challenge in that whole space of not just the logistics and the physical and technology uh, uh, platforms that are required to get a happy chicken to the process and then a, a, you know, the state of the happy chicken to, to, to the consumer, um, which is a pretty cool use case uh, because we know that uh, animals that are not looked after in the uh, rural and farming area end up essentially being unhealthy and you're eating unhealthy food. But at the other end of the thing, I mean, you know, when you look at some of these spaces with old technology that's being transformed with old systems and so forth, I mean, they're a soft target for, for the whole hacker space. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been some incidents, but this must be another challenge at, around sort of protecting your, your customers themselves, both their data, their company reputation, uh, and, and, you know, given the nature of what AT&T as a brand has done historically in connectivity and networks and data protection, data centers, that whole stuff, through to what you're doing today in lo- a lot more soft space, um, how do you approach that whole challenge of both protecting your customer and their customer's data and particularly their reputation in that space, given that they are probably high-value targets? Absolutely. And I think cargo shippers and freight shippers are seen as kind of soft targets for um, hackers. But what a lot of manufacturers don't realize is they're the second most attacked industry behind financial services. And I think I saw that in an InfoGuard security report. But um, I thought that was amazing. But if you really think about it, you can disrupt the economy just by taking over a shipper's um, platform and sending shipments to different locations. Um, that's, you know, a really tough malicious activity that you kind of have to fight against. And it's such an easy attack method when you consider the endpoints that are now at each um, delivery point, but also on each truck or on each cargo ship. Um, and one of the easier attack methods is probably hacking into employees' cell phones and their IoT devices. Um, you know, frequently those devices are low on the security priority list, but they have so much data if you really think about it. I mean, it's the key to a lot of our lives. Um, you've got banking information on there, and now you probably, if you are doing a BYO device situation, you've got your company's information on there. And, you know, in terms of cell phones, an employer is really at the mercy of an employee following the proper security protocols. And if you don't have those protocols set up in place and make sure that all of the connected devices that have potential access into your network are protected, you really are in trouble in a lot of cases. And if somebody, you know, as silly as myself can hack into, you know, my husband's phone as a joke, um, I'm pretty sure other people can do it too, just by a quick Google search. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, a personal anecdote, uh, we we spent uh, Christmas in New York uh, uh, and on the way home, uh, my son had unfortunately he'd, he'd done a basketball tour of Canada, 
and the US with his school, which they do every year. And in the last game, he uh, went up for the killer layup and came down and landed on somebody else and, and broke his ankle. And uh, so he was in a boot for the whole of Christmas and wandering around New York with a 15-year-old in a, in a boot and crutches is not an interesting oh, challenge. No. But on the way back, uh, he, he couldn't get comfortable in the seat uh, despite being business class. So mum took him off to uh, the lounge in the back of the A380 and they spent the bulk of the flight there and he fell asleep in her lap. And so she, uh, she had his phone, and so she held the phone up to his face and unlocked it and played his games for the rest of the flight, um, <laughs> much to his horror because she got a lot of high scores. Um, and I was, I was gobsmacked. I thought, that is such a simple hack uh, because there's really no way around that. Oh, yeah. Um, and so there's two parts of that I'd like to dive into. I'd like to dive into that challenge you just highlighted there around the technology components, particularly around some of the challenges we've seen from as early back as 2002 with Sarbanes-Oxley all the way through to now GDPR compliance and HIPAA and so forth. But there's something that strikes um, a nerve here with a lot of brands, and that is that whole brand protection piece that comes in. I mean, it's one thing to do the security technology challenge, but you must come across a lot of conversations where people ask you about how to uh, ensure that those things don't happen and, and what to do around brand protection. Because I know, you know, social media can explode overnight. You've got this new yeah. phrase of fake news and it's so easy to create that. And then you've got that incident where, you know, word of mouth, where, you know, it may or may not be true. And so I imagine companies now looking to be able to collect data and report on data and provide that to their staff and provide it to, to third parties to say, look, this really didn't happen or this is what the truth is. Um, what's happening in that space in your world? Right. Um, incident response is probably, we hope never to have to engage in it, but unfortunately, just how good, you know, hackers are and, and the proliferation of just devices in general, it's kind of a, a secondary response for us. And we really try to mitigate that response as much as possible. But when you do see the data breach, it's important to collect all of the data. First, stop the, you know, the bleed, but then gather all the data that's been lost and determine where you kind of stand from that standpoint and then make sure that you're educating your employees, you're investing in those uh, data points that you've lost, but also making sure that you are now in compliance with industry standards and make sure that everybody in your organization understands what occurred because the whole hiding it is has never worked for anyone. Um, unfortunately, it's just something that is now I want to say the cost of doing business in some way, and either you're spending it on the mitigation and, and um, incident response side or on the front end where you're preventing the response. It's sort of, I think the phrase that I hear all the time, uh, certainly from my own background, is sort of develop a posture, if you like, quote unquote. And often it comes with a negative connotation because uh, we hear the phrases of, you know, someone's posturing a position and it often means they're boasting or lying or fibbing or whatever the case may be. But I think yeah. in this sense, um, and I'd love love you to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, is it the case that when you develop a posture and develop a position that, as you said, it's it's about knowing where you're actually at from a reality standpoint, because as you said, the information is going to get out. So you need to develop that positive posture about where we're at and be open and honest about it, um, release the relevant data at the relevant time to control it, uh, both from a, a, a business and communication side of things, as well as having to then go and mitigate the risk and deal with all the compliance and regulatory challenges. That that balance of developing that, that reactive posture position in a positive sense, I can't even get my head around how that, that, that happens, but uh, I imagine with the, the depth and breadth that, that yourself and your team and AT&T can bring to this, it's a fairly unique position to be able to offer clients. Absolutely. And I just think that, you know, the 
intellectual property that we carry and the fact that we have an open threat exchange, which is, in my mind, kind of like the ways of threat attacks. So if other people see it, they can go on to this open source platform and report what they're seeing. And it just helps us collect a lot of this data, which really in turn helps our internal clients. And we see such a large portion of internet traffic and attacks that we're currently getting hit with on a you know daily, hourly, minute basis. So we're able to kind of collect a lot of that data and ensure that we can give a great security posture to um, our clients. I like that reference. Uh, for, for listeners who might have missed it, when you said that the your uh, open source data set was the ways of uh, security. I mean, Waze being the, uh, the the GPS navigation software app uh, owned by Google. <laughs> that's a that's a great quote. I love that. I should put that on a T-shirt. The other side of the the whole challenge here, the the probably the slightly messier part of the spectrum, that whole security challenge and data protection. I mean, transportation, as you said. I mean, um, I was surprised, but but pleased to learn that it's been recognised that transportation and that whole logistics and, trans- and spaces probably recognise as the number two big challenge because we're moving things currently every day constantly 24 7 doesn't matter whether it's postal coming to my front door going through a slot or in my mailbox or going to a a, a drop-off point or even in some cases here in australia things are dropped at uh, service stations or petrol stations we call them and you can pick up your your various things you bought online there when we think about that whole space around what the market perception is what uh, investors and shareholders what business partners are having to to understand about the current state whether there's an incident or not versus strategy and planning and the overall admin and management at some of those things before we even get into the whole governance and compliance piece. I mean, just the day-to-day management of security and the communications. Again, that's another scenario that I can imagine that you've got a fairly significant lead in the market on, particularly with your recent acquisition of AlienVault. Absolutely. And I think the what you see out in the marketplace is that a lot of companies have over 20 different partners that they're working with. And a lot of times they don't even realize that they've got sort of a shadow IT group happening in another part of their organization that's got another security breach that could potentially happen because they've purchased or downloaded some software on their company device and you don't even know about it. So there's so many things to make sure that you really need to get between the seams in terms of making sure that all of your endpoints or openings, different ways to the cloud, people working from home, people working on their cell phones, everything should be protected. And if you have over 30 employees, there is no way that you can really keep track of all of that without a great dashboard. Um, Really and truly, if you have, you know, a stock, that's amazing. Um, But if you can outsource that, I think that's even better to make sure you're mitigating a lot of that. We have, um, I want to say it's over six, and we have uh, sun up to sundown or chasing the sun, as we call it, um, stations across the world to make sure that we are always up and always have protection, not only for ourselves, AT&T, but all of the pipes that we deliver to our customers. And if they use our technology, we absolutely extend that to them, too. And there's just so much to really pay attention to. And if you have an employee, you really, as a, a hacker, you're just throwing out as much as possible. And all you need is one person to kind of give up the goods, have a bad password, or download an app that they think is, you know, legit. 
and or not look at an email sender and just assume that a vendor is really sending them an invoice and it just happens to be an exe file or even a virus hiding in a pdf anything is possible these days and if you're just not really paying attention and as every employee in you know in the world is a little overwhelmed a little overworked they're not putting a lot of time and effort into certain things that they probably should because they're focused on the day-to-day business logistics so having someone else do your security or augment what you're already doing i think is just so much better of a solution than trying to handle it all in-house because you can't keep up with the number of hackers that are just coming online Uh, indeed and i think the speed and pace and scale and whatever we want to call it uh, that things are moving now when we think about, you know, there's a number of things that I see where organizations drag me into their boardroom and, and expect uh, Jedi mind tricks with a whiteboard marker for an hour or so on how to deal with things like the generational shift. You know, we've got like five different generations of, of you know, Gen X, baby boomers, uh, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z and the millennials across the top of it. And they're having to manage, you know, the, the graceful exit of people retiring and the onboarding of new faces. And each of those generations have their own way to communicate, their own way to interact, their own way to to deal with some some are old, uh, you know, stubby pencils and clipboard running around in, in, in big sites uh, in the field, and others are uh, as, you know new kids running around the block with their smartphones, expecting it all to be there, looking and feeling like Facebook. Um, and I know we we had a great conversation uh, recently with uh, a Twitter chat, in fact, that uh, you were an amazing participant. In. And uh, one of the things that struck me there was you you had a comment uh, where you were excited to hear people's perspective on on manufacturing solutions around uh, design and wearable technology. I imagine that when we're talking about things like dashboards and so forth, uh, it's one thing to have it, as you said, in a security operations center or an operations center from a, a warehouse or transport and logistics site with big screens. Um, but are we moving to the point now where not even just tablets or smartphones, but are we moving to the point where uh, people are going to start wearing, uh, you know, smart glasses, for example. Um, uh, I mean, you know, we've seen augmented reality become a big thing in gaming space. Uh, and uh, I, w- I would hate to admit how many hours I've run around the street with my son catching little gadgets floating in 3D space. Um, I probably lost five kilos in the process uh, recently doing that, and my dog certainly got a lot more walking. But I see a lot more people talking now about not just putting the data on traditional flat screens, but now looking at doing it in um, trucks driving on the road where, you know, not just a speedometer showing on the screen, but a whole range of other data being projected. And, and you know, other places where I've even seen people will put a little uh, projector on the desk when they're having a meeting and it'll be scrolling real-time data uh, and have like a, a, a keyboard drawn on the screen, um, on the desk you can touch. Uh, are we seeing that sort of thing permeate the, the industry that you're in at the moment or is it still quite early days? I mean, is it sounds very George Jetson in some ways, I guess, when I say it. But on the other side of things, you know, I didn't expect people to be running around with smartphones, as you said, in BYOD to make mission-critical decisions this early. And yet we right. it's a given now, not a, a nicety. Well, I think if uh, the spend of AR, VR in the manufacturing space increasing from, I want to say it was like $6 billion in 2009 to almost $30 billion this year, if that's any indication, I do think that we're headed in that direction, absolutely. And the manufacturing and transportation space is just ripe for the picking to do things like this because they do have such a loss of workforce. And those people with all of the generational knowledge are, are leaving the workforce. And it'd be great if you could video into them using, you know, an AR, VR, spatial computing headset and communicate with them as they're kind of training the workforce or just walking them through an issue or a problem that would take them maybe five minutes to do. The cost savings there is amazing. And 
I was actually just talking with a, a customer who said that it costs them at least five to six thousand dollars to deploy staff to different sites where they don't have somebody with that generational knowledge and technology. So if they could, you know, do something along these lines, it would help improve the repair, and their machines would be offline for so much less time in doing that because you got to wait for the person to get on the flight, rent a car, get all the way to the the facility. So it just takes so much time and you never want to be offline. And if everything is all about efficiency, finding those little things um, that could be a benefit to your customers as well as your employees, I think helps everybody out. I love that idea. And I guess it reduces uh, risk to human life as well, because you've got that expertise uh, on hand. So you know not to touch the red wire. I I had a guest on my show recently who did this with, uh, (coughs) excuse me, with uh, data center infrastructure where they could, as you said, they could have slightly more junior staff coming on board to get uh, everything from internships to hands-on experience using um, smartphones and tablets where they could hold the thing up at a router or a switch or a server and somebody at a, at, a, at a call center or a data center with their lifetime experience could say, it's that one right there. It's not labeled. It doesn't have a color. It's old and greasy. Lots of fingers have touched it, but it's the one on the top right-hand corner and they could almost draw a little box on the screen at their end and that could be relayed and all be reality overlaid on a, a tablet or a smartphone to show them exactly which thing to touch or which cable to pull, which when you've got a, right. uh, an eight-foot-high rack full of thousands of RJ45s, you don't want to be pulling the wrong one. Um, what do, do you think that organisations are ready for this? I mean, I know, you know it's, it's one thing to have a whole bunch of new generations coming through this who are cloud natives, who are internet natives, who are social media friendly. They, they expect everything to be real-time and, and, and app-based. But, but when we think about some of these big industries around transport logistics, I mean, they, they are decades and decades old. Some of the infrastructure has been running for, for as many decades and has been there humming away. And there is a lot of, um, I guess, you know, native knowledge inside people's minds that have been through this lifetime uh, career path that comes with some of these industries. Do you think there's a, a willingness or readiness to adopt some of these technologies? Because some of them are quite big shifts in behavioural or cultural requirement to sort of adapt to technology and adapt to that change What's your general sense of the industry as, as, as a whole of cost transport and, and, and uh, manufacturing with their readiness and willingness to sort of adopt new approaches, new technology? I think they're ready. And I do think that they're dipping their toe in the water. But once they do, the ones who are first to market, you're going to see a huge splash for them. The, you know, the car manufacturers that are using the, you know, virtual or augmented reality or spatial computing to help design cars, they're getting the cars out there a lot quicker. And then when you combine 5G technology with, you know, the speed of manufacturing, you're going to see products reach the, you know, the marketplace a lot faster. And those startups who are kind of disrupting the traditional large manufacturers aren't going to be able to make those investments. So I think it's their way to kind of combat against, you know, the disruptors is to be first in technology and make sure that their products are first to market and they're out in the marketplace loud and proud with how they're utilizing technology, both in their factory to do, you know, very traditional, very efficiency building, um, gaining momentum that way. And then also in the kind of expertise or um, fun space, as I like to call it, you know, customizing products while you're in the, um, you know, in the store or making, you know, kind of light of what you're buying or putting your name on something. Um, 
let's say, for example, if you have like a Harley Davidson, putting ingraining your name on that saddle while you're there, because there's nothing more than people people love is customization of products. And if you can do that utilizing technology and getting it out there really fast, I think it's a great, great way to kind of spend your money and gain market share quicker and faster than other companies. There's been some big shifts we've seen in this space. I know uh, just from my own experience over the last 35 years of even simple things like putting um, security cameras in place where initially they were introduced decades ago because they wanted to make sure that no one's breaking in after hours. <clears throat> and then those same, ca- same cameras were used for sort of employee monitoring and that had a bit of uh, resistance, but then all of a sudden uh, some of the benefits around um, making sure if you had a heart attack and fell down, someone could respond to you immediately and save your life. So some of those issues went away. But we're now seeing more soft things around, you know, what happens with cookies on my device? Or as you said, you know, what happens if I get messaging? I imagine that some of those barriers are going to come down pretty quickly when people see that, yes, it may be uh, my device, but I'm using it for work things. Yes, I'm potentially, uh, use, you know, having to change the way I work, but there's all these upsides. Um, that must come back to a lot of what you you do in your, your role uh, as far as the channel marketing side of things goes, help organizations get that messaging right and communicate that education to their staff and their their industry as a whole um there must be some interesting conversations you're having in that space about how you position that to, to not just put a positive spin on it but show all the business benefits and all the employee benefits because i can imagine that in you know like many things in the absence of knowledge uh people will create something and sometimes it isn't always the right thing is it the case that organizations look to you and and, and your team and certainly at&t as a brand to help drive that and develop and build strategy and planning around that communications as well? Absolutely. Um, we When we meet with um, different individuals from like a consulting perspective, you have to take into consideration what this technology will do to their workforce and not only just the end output and the efficiencies they're going to gain, but just like all new technology, it is a little scary to people when you're first launching something, you're like, oh, what does this have to do with me? It's more like a big brother situation. I'm not in on this. But when you start showcasing the benefits and safety sells, I will say that. And if they know that they're going to be a lot safer having a vision as a service or vision as a sensor camera in their facility, that will help monitor, you know, people from making unsafe decisions like we were in a facility where they used a broomstick to move packages that got stuck. And it's like, you could rip your arm off there. There's no way anybody should be doing that. And so when you install a camera that says somebody is putting an object or a body part or something in, in harm's way, it can shut off in a heartbeat that system so that you no longer have that problem that mitigates things. So having those cameras or having something along those lines, If you can show the end user what the benefit is to them, I think that's the most important thing. And everybody should be a part of the implementation and a part of the executing of the new technology. So it's a benefit to the greater company, but also to the individual. And people do look look to us for that because we do have such a good brand reputation in terms of making sure that we care for our employees and we we stand behind that. I love that. I remember there was a famous poster back in World War One in Britain. They used to post up around the place, and uh, to get rid of that uh, hearsay and unknown, I think the phrase went along the lines that an informed person is a happy person uh, because uh, people will make up all kinds of things if they aren't fully informed and educated. And so the campaign uh, removed all of the uh, 
the fear factor of what you didn't know and it started informing people through things like you know running reels of news every day on, on the local cinemas so that people can go and get informed rather than just hearing it from the neighbour. Underpinning some of the security challenges, just one quick thing I'd love to dive into, and it's probably a bit deep to go into too much detail, but we see a lot of work being done by governments at, uh, at, at council level, at state level, at federal level, and now it's, uh, I guess, global in the likes of, of what we're seeing with GDPR. Um, how are organisations coping? And, and, and I'd love to learn a bit more about what you're doing yourself and, and your team, and certainly AT&T as a brand, around just some of the challenges with, with compliance and governance. I mean, you know, you've got... Uh, uh, key verticals in, in the transport and uh, um, manufacturing space that have got to deal with. But then you've also got other things at the far end of the spectrum, like global standards like GDPR. And you've got some really big shifts around digital disruption, digital transformation. You've got 5G coming and a whole range of things that they're already being challenged with. Um, what's happening in the space that a whole governance and compliance when it comes to security and, and, and infrastructure that you're either helping implement or maintain and manage and, and some of the data that's running through that and all those touch points as you said, that some companies might have like 20 different point solutions you're having to manage and, and protect. Um, just treatment of data around that must be a logistical nightmare, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, for, for yeah. transport logistics to, to even just understand and grasp and develop plans and strategies on. I'd love to get some insight on what's happening in that space in your world. I think, um, you know, GDPR coming into um, into light and us having to comply since we are a global company has really helped set the stage for us to ensure that our customers also are able to comply and utilize the same setup that we're, we're kind of abiding by. Um, I think in terms of the transportation industry, the best is the ELD law that's coming into effect pretty soon, and that's the electronic electronic logging device. Um, so all truckers now have to have some t- sort of electronic logging device, and there's a several of them. It's our responsibility for those customers who've chosen to use us to make sure that they're secure, they're reporting the right data. And it's really important for people to use and utilize that properly so that you don't have distracted driving or tired drivers or fatigue happening um, with individuals on the road. And if we didn't keep that secure, people would be able to kind of fib their logs like they did when they had them on paper um, to get by and kind of squeeze a couple more minutes or a couple more miles in. And it's something that we take very seriously. Um, We try and ensure that we're abiding by all of the regulations. Um, We've changed the way our data centers collect data to ensure that they're not leaving the state that they were generated in. And I believe uh, we're going to have to start doing that for our California companies as well as employees out there soon when that law takes place. So it's definitely something that's very common to us, and we are big on compliance and making sure that we um, follow those rules to a T, and we have a whole compliance office that keeps us uh, straight on that. Yeah, I can imagine there's multiple tiers as well, because I know, you know when we think about some of the, the, the data collection we're talking about, as you said, you know whether it's cameras monitoring it and detecting things in it through AI and machine learning, whether it's uh, people scanning things with, with barcode scanners that go from in the truck and out the truck and onto the shelves, there's going to be layers of monitoring now where you've got things where you've got, you know, electronic uh, logging of the truck itself and then parts of the truck and then the trailer goes in the truck and then what goes in the trailer. I, I can only imagine the nightmare that that creates with, with cross controls of who's logging what and where. Uh, but I know, I know at and is doing a lot of stuff around generating a compliance platform for, for this. I read, I think it was back in uh, early 
Well, actually, it was early this month, I think, that uh, there was an article uh, on the AT&T Technology blog around what you're doing in the space with um, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration Group around this stuff. So you're clearly well ahead of the, the curve on this, as is always the case. Um, I, I imagine that there's now a scenario where organisations are going to have to put this on their boardroom agendas as a standing agenda item to deal with that now they're not only having to sort out what they're doing with treatment of data and the types of data, but now in logistics and transportation and certainly manufacturing, the level of tracking that goes about and, and what happens. What, what are your thoughts on how companies approach that challenge? I mean, um, at what point do they need to – because I think there's like a maturity curve in some of these technologies where some organizations will wait for N plus one version for someone else to take the pain and, and hemorrhage and bleed cost to, to get across it. And others, as you said before, want to get ahead of the curve. And there's a great line I read years ago that went along the lines that – those companies who successfully leverage technology invariably get such a lead on their competitors that some of their competitors may never actually catch up. Um, how should companies that are not currently uh, even working on this space approach this challenge? Uh, I mean, beyond obviously picking up the phone and talking to yourself and organising a meeting and having you present and brief them on it, um, what are some of the key stages they need to be going through from an awareness and education point of view to actually getting up and running and maybe doing a minimum viable product-style trial to develop capabilities to implementing yeah, so I think the number one and most important thing to do is to do an industry standards assessment. Make sure that you're complying with the industries and that you are in to ensure whether it's manufacturing and you're, you've got ISO assessments that you have to be compliant with or if you're in the transportation space and you've got ELD. Um, and then after that, it's really a strategy and roadmap. Um, and then beyond that, it's really a benchmarking of where you want to be in the growth aspect. And there's always kind of the learning curve and the rough road to being first. Um, you know, the road to success is always under construction. So you want to make sure that you're, you're first to that, but you're taking your due diligence and doing those um, risk assessments, the industry standard assessments, and then moving forward to ensure that all of the sensitive information that you have, you're doing a vulnerability scan, you're making sure that you're doing um, your due diligence there. And then as you move down, it's making sure that you have the appropriate um, threat response and threat management systems in place. I like that. That's a T-shirt itself. The uh, road to success is always being built. What I'd, uh, one of the things I'd love to wrap up on, if you don't mind, is, I mean, you've given some amazing insights into kind of uh, what you're doing currently and where we've come from and some of the key challenges around everything from, I guess, uh, you know, ensuring that whole end-to-end -end journey uh, of maintaining accountability in the supply chain and some of the underpinning challenges around, uh, I guess, protecting uh, the company and itself and its brand and reputation and the data that's involved. And obviously now some of the stuff you just highlighted with uh, the, some of the regular operational challenges of, of protecting the data and compliance and governance. Um, one last question, if I may, is um, I often ask my guests to sort of uh, gaze into a virtual crystal ball. I'd love you to wrap up for us with some insights around where you think we're going the next three to five years and beyond. I know when we were talking earlier, you had some amazing thoughts around what's happening in quantum computing, uh, around autonomous transport, and, and the application of artificial and machine uh, learning in some of these spaces. Would you mind doing a, yeah. a, a final one for me just to wrap up around uh, just a bit of crystal ball gazing on some of these big, exciting things that are coming about, which, again, sound very futuristic, but the reality is they're here today and we need to start planning for them. Absolutely. I, I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head there when we were talking about all of this, but quantum computing plus artificial intelligence, I think, is going to be 
huge for not just the transportation industry, but all industries in general. And when you think about transportation, the efficiencies gained are going to be massive, you know, just in routes, determining your different routes, the fuel savings, the, you know, the benefit to the environment in that case, which I think is important to us all. Um, And then second is, or third, you've got um, what's kind of becoming a little bit more popular in trucking, which is called platooning. And you have two trucks riding behind each other and the secondary truck gets kind of the benefit of the wind. And um, if you can create routes where trucks going in the same direction can kind of ride behind each other, you also have that additional fuel efficiency, which I think is amazing. Um, And then when you add in autonomous transportation to all of that, I think you reduce congestion and traffic that people complain about so frequently in in really every city in the country. Wow, I love that idea. I I sit on the fence on this in many ways, and that is I think um, individual cars being autonomous is probably a a mathematical challenge we can't solve because... uh, if anyone in the data science space like myself has tried to mathematically model a kangaroo jumping around on the road, it's impossible. They're too random. <laughs> uh, but uh, I know in China, I just read a paper where they've uh, they've launched exactly what you're talking about there, where um, they are uh, running fleets of trucks who are platooning, and they also have um, virtual rails on the road where they've got magnetic strips under the road so that the, the devices, both buses and trucks, know not to leave the lane that's got the rail on it. And they have a human at the front one uh, that's providing some of that uh, oversight to ensure that things don't go haywire if the computer gets a bit bent. But all the ones behind uh, do something that we're already currently doing, which is, you know, intelligent cars making, making sure they brake before the thing in front of them stops and avoiding a collision scenarios. So, uh, yeah, I love that whole vision. I think I think there's an exciting future for us. I'm, you know, I'm a father of a 15-year-old son and an 18-year-old daughter, and when I wake up every day and the sort of work that someone like yourself is doing and your team around the space just excites me because I know that my kids are certainly growing into a future that is exciting and bright for them and a lot of the naysayers who don't think technology and AI and ML is going to make life better clearly haven't uh, watched a Netflix movie and had a recommendation made for them. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, uh, Clara, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend an hour with you. Thank you so much for making time to catch up with me, and I can't wait to have you back on the show. I've probably made about three note- three pages of notes to follow up on, but um, thank you so much for sharing a little insight to yourself and your background, your role, and certainly what you're doing currently, and and loved all of the insights you've shared around what you're doing around everything from brand protection to data protection, security, and I I can only imagine what the next three to five years is going to hold ahead of you, and and congratulations on some of the amazing achievements you've had in both personal life and career, and and I love what you're doing with that whole space of helping underprivileged kids. That's just mind-boggling. I I hope many more people follow in your footsteps, and uh, I hope the rest of your evening's fantastic, and we look forward to seeing you on the show again soon. Thank you so much for your time. It was so fun for my first podcast. I appreciate all of the help and support. Oh, I'm honored that we were the first and it certainly won't be the last. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We'll look forward to you in the next uh, conversations with Des. You've just had some amazing insights from the amazing uh, Clara Eustad, who is the Director of Channel Marketing for Manufacturing, Transportation and Consumer Packaged Goods, or CPG, at uh, AT&T. Have a great day. Have a great evening. And uh, Clara, thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. 